On this episode of AV Week, CES goes virtual for the very first time. What were the big takeaways from the show? How do you create an interactive experience online? And figuring out 4K for end users. All that and more. Next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 491, recorded Friday, January 15th, 2021. Corona Tech. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Atlas IED, innovative audio solutions for every business environment, and by FSR. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. With us to discuss the news and information we have gathered for this second week now of January. First and foremost, Dawn Mead. You know her as AV Dawn. We can't tell you where she works because then we'd have to do things to you. How are you, ma'am? That sounds wrong, but <laughs> very good, Tim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, also with us, young man that I actually just met uh, in person about a year or so ago through our friend, uh, mutual friend, Mr. Chris Dutto. But his name is Paul Richards. He's worth uh, with uh, PTZ Optics, but also has a fantastic uh, channel called Stream Geeks. Welcome, sir. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And last but not least, a very, uh, I'm not going to call her an old friend because I'm older than she is, but I've known her a long time, Rachel Bradshaw, uh, who uh, just recently uh, um, joined uh, one of my favorite PR firms, Caster Communications. So how are you, madam? I'm fabulous. Good to see you, Tim. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, so we're actually going to, I'll start with Don on this, um, but uh, speaking of Caster and, and, and Rachel, uh, they just finished up a virtual trade show. One of the things that, that Kim Lancaster and the, and the team there does is they, they, they cover and they uh, support technology companies. CES is typically one of their busiest times of the year. However, now they're not in Vegas this year. They are virtual. So this was the first and biggest show of the year to go virtual, Dawn. Uh, they announced it back in August. Um, and so as they're doing that, they're obviously uh, ramping up and, and getting all of the, the parts and pieces from a virtual standpoint. As you're watching this week, you know, what were your takeaways from this virtual CES? What were some things that they did well, some things they didn't do so well, or what were some of the, the highlights in, from a product standpoint? Well, I mean, to be honest, I haven't been able to sit in on a lot of sessions. Um, today, th this week was a week where I actually had to go back into the office for a couple of mm. days, which these days is, you know, scary. But um, yeah, it, I think that they're doing a good job of getting the information out there. And I mean, the problem with CES, even over and above, like, you know, your infocoms and things, is it's just massive. It's just so many, you know, infocom and, and some shows like that. It's like, this is AV. We have the sound people, we have the signage people, we have the, you know, guts in the middle people. That's it. W when you're talking CES, you've got phone guys and car guys. You know, I saw something that, that they, uh, GM showed a, a flying car at CES. Um, you had everything from tech that we're caring about, you know, uh, DisplayPort 2.0, for instance, there were announcements on that. Things that impact us as an AV community clear up to fancy, expensive, but reusable, rechargeable face masks for the post-COVID world. So it, it's just so massive that, you know, even just flipping through to see the highlights, 
it could take days. <laughs> so, um, but I, I do like the fact that a lot of the virtual trade shows, they're making the shows more accessible to people that normally would not be able to fly to Vegas, normally would not be able to take the days off and go and attend, see the announcements first up, or, you know, at most we'd get to see a press release, whereas now they're doing a little more with like videos and, and virtual press. Um, things like that, it's big positive. I hope that Infocom and, and CES and, and ISC and all of the shows do keep a virtual component going forward for just that reason, so that folks, more folks can attend virtually if they can't make it in person. But I also, this year I, and last year, I said this on a different show, I feel really bad for all those sweet little old ladies in Vegas that usually scan our badges at classes because, you know, they're not going to have their bingo money and their, and their little fun money if, you know, working their jobs at the convention center with the badge scanners. So it's really a kind of a mixed bag, but um, I'm, I'm excited that the virtual show concept is taking off. I hate to tell you this, but that's not bingo money. I'm just going to point that out. Well, there. yeah, in some it's cases, big. yeah, it's their outright living money. But yeah. Yeah. I was going the other way with it's more gambling money, but OK. <laughs> well, All right. Yeah, uh, bingo is gambling, <laughs> Tim. To either be clear. way. Yeah. OK. Yes, technically, but don't. All right. Uh, <laughs> speak, Rachel Bradshaw. So for, from a both from a PR standpoint, but also as somebody who, who used to help a, a trade show, i.e. Infocom. Um, what were your takeaways from this virtual? And, and Don's right. It is the biggest, uh, I could be wrong here, but I don't think I am, the biggest trade show in North America um, it, from a calendar standpoint. So it going yeah. virtual, what were your takeaways? Um, I, I kind of want to bounce the ball over to Paul on this one because he is really expert at creating uh, engaging virtual experiences. But I think it's really telling what Don said about how she hasn't been like totally immersed in CES this year. What a weird year, right? Normally for Caster as an organization, we would have been in Las Vegas for a week already. You know, we would have we would have said goodbye to all of our families on New Year's Eve. And this would have been, we would have had a, a hellish holiday preparing for uh, CES because it's just the busiest time of the year for us. And this year it was strangely quiet leading up to CES. And it's been my experience that, you know, people are paying attention to the news coming out of CES, but they are just not immersed in it in the way that, you know, you, you would be obviously if you were physically there, but even if you're not physically there, the way that people uh, typically pay just rapt attention to everything that's happening in Las Vegas in early January. And I think that's down a bit to the approach that CES has taken to virtual events, which is not the only approach that exists to virtual events. Um, I do think uh, more broadly, and I hope that like any of my friends who are hearing this podcast are, won't be offended that I steal their smart ideas, but I've been talking to a lot of smart people about virtual CES this week. And I do think that there is a lot of interesting wellness technology happening at CES this year. Um, Giles, Giles Sutton, who is the co-interim CEO of Cedia, said to me earlier this week, you know, it's all Corona tech. 
Um, and that applies not just to the stuff that's explicitly health technology or wellness technology, but all of the technologies that are being informed by this newfound awareness of how important it is to exert control over your environment with respect to health and wellness. So all of this, all of the, you know, touchless digital signage technologies that we're seeing right now is in, is in essence, Corona tech, all of the technologies that we see that focus on being able to control things at a distance or with fewer people is in a, is in a sense, Corona tech, uh, the smart doorbells that we're seeing that allow you to check somebody's temperature before they enter your home. It's all informed by the way that the past year has changed the culture to make us probably permanently more aware of, uh, of the, the ways that we put ourselves at risk by moving around in the world and how technology can help us mitigate those risks. Uh, absolutely. Well, Paul, Rachel mentioned you and, and bouncing it over to you because she's right. You created probably one of the more immersive uh, events that we had last year. I'm not saying that just because I was involved with it, uh, because it was, it really was. And, and, and not for nothing, but the college radio part of me uh, was in love with G Love uh, 25 years ago and got to see him live-ish, you know, so that was also awesome. But but talk about it from, from two standpoints. Also, from, from the standpoint of somebody who has literally written a book, the book on creating virtual events, but also somebody who, who's, who's produced a number of them. Um, look at it from that standpoint, but also from a manufacturing standpoint, right? You know, as a manufacturer who would typically go to a trade show, maybe not CES, maybe sometimes, what was your takeaways from this one? Well, you know, to Don's, one of the things that Don said that struck me is that it probably was the best year to attend CES without actually being there. Um, you know, the creators of CES definitely put some time into the production value. Who are the hosts going to be? How are we going to make this as interactive as possible? They also are dealing with almost an impossible paradox of how do you create an intimate experience with millions of people? It's impossible, right? There's, they weren't using Zoom breakout rooms. There's just too many people to do that with. Um, from a manufacturer's perspective, you know, we did attend CES in uh, 2020 when, or maybe it was uh, 2019, um, but uh, it was a great show because there's a lot of new techie people that you can get exposed to that don't go to and don't even know what Infocom is, to be honest, yet they're influencers on YouTube. They are, you know, well-known tech people who are tech writers for The Verge, for example. Yeah. So the audience at CES is great. But from a manufacturer's standpoint, if you're not Microsoft, it's very easy to get lost into the mix. And uh, if you're not on the official agenda, the exhibitor list is just too long. And what they were doing from an, a virtual event, uh, everybody watches that main broadcast, but the trickle-down effect for this, the small to medium-sized manufacturers, um, we haven't seen a great return on investment with virtual events unless it's a small event. If it's a small event, small group, you can get into those intimate breakout rooms. And uh, we're talking about streaming technology. We're talking about video communications technology. It's very relevant. Um, but CES did their best. And you know, you mentioned we had G-Love at our small presence summit conference. You know, I would have loved to have Keith Urban and the lineup that they had at CES. That certainly would uh, draw some crowds. So it was a good year. If you like virtual events, this was the year to attend virtually. Um, 
but there was no in-person experience. And, you know, you, you love turning that corner and seeing the new, you know, pub style uh, pong table that you can put in your basement and you love, you know, you, you love bumping into celebrities that happens. You know, I, these YouTube celebrities are running around with your cameras. Who's that guy? Oh, he's got 5 million followers, you know? Oh, well, you know, I just bumped into him and we, we chatted. That doesn't happen virtually, sadly. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and you know the, I, I agree with you, but the, really quickly, just as 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 a clarification here, because different people's ideas is, is you know have different you know um, numbers. You said a small intimate event. Granted, CES again is is the biggest ginormous you know event at least in the U.S. I, I don't think that I, I would qualify the President Summit as as small though. What for for your standpoint, what would you consider a, a small? I guess, manageable from, from the standpoint of, of getting intimate uh, event, like from a number standpoint. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I, I'll reference a couple pieces of technology and things that I've looked at to understand that one is, you know, zoom limits their zoom meetings to 300 people usually in like the basic pro license. And that's been studied. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a book about it. I think it was his book called Blink. But I can't remember. It was a tipping point where they studied organizations beyond 300. You just can't remember everybody's name anymore. Yeah. And you just can't make those connections, let alone try to do that in one virtual event. You know, there's, we're talking about organizations who are building their companies with units of 300 people because they're trying to learn all those 300 people by face, by name. They work together all year round and that's how they do it, let alone a virtual event. On Twitch, going the virtual route, the live streaming route, a lot of um, influencers that I talk about and live streamers, it's, this is a really funny statistic, but it comes up over and over again. Once you get over like 100 or 200 live viewers, you, 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 it's too many people to recognize who's who. And they, they hired uh, chat room moderators to try to figure it out for them. But uh, it's interesting study that once you go past like 300, 400 people, the intimacy of the viewer to the content creator who's talking to the chat room, they actually start making less money on Twitch. So for the people who make their living on Twitch and there's Twitch donations and bits and things of that nature, the ones who can cultivate a super intimate 100, 200, 300 person live stream experience actually end up making more per person through the, 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 the donation system mm -hmm. than those who are getting thousands and can't create those intimate experiences. So... You know, at the present summit, mm -hmm. I think we had like two or 300 people watching live. And then we would have like mm -hmm. 50 or 60 in these breakout rooms. And, um, you know, you get to know those people. And, um, you know, at the CES level, that's why I mentioned it as a paradox, because they're trying to accommodate so much, but they were kind of unable to, to divide it up evenly and allow people to create. Now they did have Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, and they were creating rooms for people to go in to talk to vendors. And, mm -hmm. you know, from my experience, that that is good. And, it, and it, people do come in and you don't get a thousand people at once. You get a couple people coming in and out. Um, so, you know, th that's my, my th thoughts on it. You know, trying to go above 300 in a single space is, uh, you know, gets to be too much. Yeah, it makes a whole Tim, lot of sense. Go ahead. Yeah. Tim, can I jump in on that? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree hundred percent with what Paul said. Um, and we've seen this in our own industry before. You know, we always come and do our post-Infocom shows. And Infocom is not near the scope and scale of CES, just in sheer volume of both vendors and, and people. But we talk about you go to the show to, like, have your private meetings and FaceTime with some people, but also just to, like, run around the booths and look at things. You'll get that intimate, like, 
demo ex- explanation at a smaller regional show or or when your rep comes into your company. You know, we, we don't rely on the big show to give us the information we need for purchasing more than we rely on that smaller, intimate. And, you know, it also speaks to why sci-fi conventions and magazine or uh, comic cons, you know, you get those autograph lines. Since the pandemic, there's this thing now called Cameo. Mm-hmm. And Cameo, you can just reach out to your favorite celeb and for probably the cost of a picture at Comic-Con, you get a one-on-one video from them or, or special greeting from them or something. So there's a lot to be said for that, keeping things intimate and, and uh, just the psychology of, of humans, I think. so. Yeah, and to pile on as a recovering event organizer, I think that something that Paul does really, really effectively is create layers of intimacy at his events. Like if you go to any Stream Geeks event or the upcoming House of Worship Summit or the Presence Summit, you'll find that there are there are activities that are designed to be mass activities. There are activities that are designed to be group activities. And there are attendees, there, there are activities that are designed to be intimate activities. And it's the same thing at a physical trade show. You know, you have the, the floor, which is this mass activity. You have group activities with your, with your conferences and your breakouts. And you have more intimate activities with dinners and one-on-one meetings. And you need all of those layers of interaction to create a really compelling event. It seems to happen pretty organically at a physical trade show, because like Paul was saying, you have that kismet, right? Like you you meet people, you connect with them, you decide to go to dinner together, intimacy happens, boom, nobody even has to plan it necessarily, although we do obsessively. Um, But with a virtual event, you have a twofold problem. You have to create those layers of intimacy, which is really, really hard. And then you have to convince people to participate in them, which can feel really, really unnatural. It's it's not easy. No, it's not. It, it goes down to the incentives that you give people, you know, whether that's physical, you know, whether that's the swag or the tchotchkes or is the, those connections, right? And I'll, I'll point back real quickly before we get on to the next story. Uh, I met Frank Patacala, who's now taken over one of our, our, our RT AV show, Um through one of those, you know, uh, those, those connections, right. It was, a, it was a breakout room actually at Invocom, uh, the, the happy hour we did. Right. Mm-hmm. And he and I ended up together in the, in the room together. <clears throat> didn't, had never met him in person, obviously I had known him social media, but didn't, had never met him. We had a connection, right? And so that, that's an incentive is making those connections. So absolutely. Uh, next story actually comes to us from our friends over at Innovate on the Net. RTI has released a new video over IP platform. This allows you to send 4K, and this is the important part here, 4K over a 1 gig network is also HDCP 2.2 compliant uh, gives you 60 Hertz uh, refresh rate. If you're looking for 120, do not look at this yet. Um, possibly uh, at further um, upgrades down the road, but currently it is only 60 Hertz, but it's still 4k. Rachel, I'm going to start with you on this as somebody who's been around the industry for a long time and seen every evolution of the, the, the next greatest, you know, um, uh, resolution, whether that's 4K or HD or true HD or true 4K. And, and yes, Sony and uh, some others are already talking about 8K. But as AV over IP has evolved, let's say over the last five years, uh, initially it was just 1080 that folks were talking about. And now we have gotten to the point where we're talking about 4K. When we're looking at this, you know, what is it What is it that that the end users right are, are really kind of asking for is that is it that the end user pulling on them saying, "Hey, we need 4K," or is it the manufacturers going, 
hey, we've got the latest, greatest thing and we can do it over, over IP now. It used to be really the latter. I, my whole attitude towards 4K used to kind of be wait, but why? Um, because I, I felt like it was all tied up in this spec race that had gone well beyond you know, the acuity of the human eye to just like, what's the next specification we can sell people? Um, but as the use case for, for 4K evolves, I think that's changing. Um, especially as you see more people using 4K, not not merely, and I don't want to dismiss this, but seriously, not merely to transmit a single high-resolution image, but to capture an image that can then be used in more ways. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in, for instance, in like in lecture or event capture applications and being able to use 4K to to use a single camera to capture multiple shots, mm-hmm. yep. then you have a compelling end user use case that's like, okay, you are making this easier for me. You are saving me money. You're ultimately putting less pressure on my network. This is something that I want. It's, it's more than something that I want. It's something that I need. Um, and I think that, that the the network case is evolving to be more compelling alongside the application case. Mm-hmm. Paul, same kind of question as, as you were talking with end users and, and just for clarification, you know, or, or uh, everybody knows, understands this, PTZ Optics makes um, cameras that you guys sell cameras that, and a lot of them are 4K. Uh, a lot of them can go on the network. Um, you guys also uh, leverage the NDI platform quite a bit as well. So as you're talking to your clients, the resellers, as well as their clients, the places where they're going in, what, are, what kind of feedback are you getting from, you know, from those, those, in, those systems and those, those um, end users as to what exactly it is they're looking for? Well, you know, I don't think they think in resolutions and specs as much as how easy is this going to be to use and what is it going to look like? Um, You know, I remember helping a school upgrade from SD to HD and they told me, wow, we can now read the words on the boards on the blackboard and and, we can actually read it now. Um, Is 4K going to make it make that much of a difference. Like SD to HD was like, I can now read the words on the whiteboard and the blackboard 4k becomes, can we actually do something with this to Rachel's point? Is it a video production where we can now get multiple shots inside of that 4k image? Cause 1080 is good enough. Okay. To it's great. Once you go to 4k, you're like, do I really need to see every whisker on this guy's face now? So in that regard, you know, with our company, we do get into a lot of video production where it's like, okay, 4k over IP. That's pretty nice. Cause now I can do these virtual camera shots and I can start to really make use of 4k. In fact, the webcam I'm using right now is a 4k webcam, but zoom's only using it for 640 by 480. But it's great that I can zoom in, you know, 8x without it getting pixelated, right? So 4k has a space um, and it's going to be great, but it's not like a huge replacement. Now, video over IP, pretty cool. Uh, An example of a customer really loving video over IP with a, a PTZ optics camera one ethernet cable can power the camera, control the camera, 
and you can get video and audio from the camera. So that used to be an SDI cable. That used to be an RS-232 cable. That used to be hire an electrician to put power in. So video over IP, I am totally all about. But my question is, is the 4K thing really going to be what customers really want? It's not about that. It's about showing them what they can do with it. And how easy are you going to make it to use? The bigger question is, who get, how do you get that video into Zoom? right? How do you get that video into Microsoft Teams? Where's the virtual webcam driver that does that? Uh, which is something, you know, we, we're working on and other people have available too. The big announcement is getting that video over IP into the things that customers actually want. How easy is that? And how easy is it for them to control that 4K? Because they probably don't need it. If they're using a Zoom call, 640 by 480. You know, it's, it's, maybe you're getting 720p. Uh, we're in a world where streaming in 1080 is totally fine. I mean, sure, you could stream in 4K, but are people really going to get it in 4K? Do they have enough bandwidth? So I still think it's a spec thing. It's, it's more to me about let's integrate this into something that's usable and let's make the user interface easier so that it actually does what the customers need. Because at the end of the day, a video feed is a video feed. It's clear in HD already. 4K is a little clearer how are you making it easier for the customer to actually do something with all those extra pixels? Yeah. All right, Don, you are the customer now. So do you, do you need 4k? Do you want 4k? What, what is it that you, what do you want? So I'm going to wear two hats briefly, just okay. up until a couple of years ago when I was an integrator, the answer to that question, 99% of the time was we don't need 4k. You're just paying a lot of money for, as Paul said, a great signal that won't travel through the wires that you have, or if they do travel through the wires or, you know, go over IP 4K, won't work in the device that you're putting it in or won't show on this. You know, I, I, we've been talking about this since 4K came out and it was like there were two Blu-rays that you could watch on 4K. And you'd have to buy the, blue, the, the 4K camera or uh, device, the 4K cables, the 4K TV, you know, and it was just this big, massive thing. So... 98, probably, uh, uh, maybe 95% of all your average customers don't really need it. Paul's right. You know, HD is good, good enough. Now, where I am now as an end user, happen to be in one of that 5% that would need 4K because, you know, simulation, design engineering, when you're pulling up design documents, you have a bunch of engineers, you know, pulling things around and trying to figure out how to fix that little thing in this, you know, machine, that sort of thing is where you need the 4K. You can get the bigger picture, you can follow it, you can zoom right in, you know, and, and in that regard, like the medical field, the military industrial complex, all of these types of folks that are doing the simulation, doing the modeling, they're the folks that really need it. And it's exciting that we can now do 4K over ethernet. Um, like Paul said, you know, one cable, don't have to worry about it. But then again, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the situation I'm in currently with my company, you don't think about the network. You don't breathe on the network. You don't, you know, even if you build your own separate parallel network, you have to have physical distance from the for real network. And there's a whole lot of extra hoops to jump through, but it's something that I'm going to keep an eye on for sure. For sure. All right. Very good. That'll be a good place to stop. Thank you all so much. Mr. Paul Richards from PTZ, PTZ Optics. Thank you, sir. Uh, how do people get a hold of you or PTZ Optics or subscribe to uh, Stream Geeks? You can follow us pretty much at PTZ Optics or at Stream Geeks. We're pretty focused on the live streaming and broadcast space and we're streaming all the time. So we'd love to have you guys join. 
Rachel Bradshaw from Castor Communications. Thank you, ma'am. Thanks for having me on. You can find me at rachel at castorcom.com. You can find Castor at castorcom.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, cross-platform at Tempurity. And you can find her on her own podcast called AV Super Friends. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Come listen to the AV Super Friends every other week. This is our this is our higher ed and AV podcast where uh, I have four smart friends who say very intelligent things and I come on and act obnoxious. Oh, whatever. She's incredibly smart as well. So uh, also last but not least, Dawn Mead, uh, AV Dawn. Uh, thank you, ma'am. Thanks for having me, Tim. Folks, as Tim said, you can't find me online where I work because that's a big secret. But you can always find me on the socials, AV Dawn or Dawn Mead. And of course, you can find me here on avnation.tv hosting the AV Social Show and turning up on AV Week as much as Tim will let me. That's fairly accurate. Uh, so uh, for me, for Tim Albright, uh, don't follow me. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I am still bemoaning the fact that the Bears couldn't get past um, the Saints you know, the second oldest quarterback in the league. But that's beside the point. Um, don't, don't talk to me about football. Dude. I know, Undefeated I know. season Dawn, down the tubes. Dawn's a, 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 a Steelers fan. So she at least thought she was going to make it farther in the playoffs. I knew I wasn't. Um, but go by the website if you would, please. Avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. You'll find programs like this and a host of others. While you're there, check out our sponsors, either folks who help us financially, help us bring you AV Week and Resi Week and all the others. Uh, a couple of cool things coming down the pipeline. First of all, uh, once this posts uh, on Monday, it will be the final round of the Avianation uh, Reader's Choice Awards. So you have nominated, you have voted. This is it, kids. Uh, last two weeks of January, um, go and vote. Uh, also, uh, Mr. Uh, Matt Scott is having some really cool uh, conversations over on Resi Week, so check that out as well. So all that and more at avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV Week. Thank you.